in our last time together, I pray that, that you would have your way with us. I, I pray that this would be a, a turning point in our lives where we wouldn't go back the same way that we came in last night, but we would go home some, somewhat changed. Uh, seeing a glimpse of your great glory, drawing near to Jesus Christ in repentance and confession. And Father, I, I pray that as this last session kind of wraps up, that we would we would leave uh, more committed than ever to pursue your holiness, more committed than ever to seek your face and seek your glory and know you and, and relate to you as you ought to be worshipped and as you ought to be praised. You are so worthy, so glorious and so wonderful. And I pray that you would draw us in one more time, Lord. I pray that you would show us your, your greatness and your power one more time and give us your grace for one more meeting here this morning. Help us, if we're getting tired or distracted, help us to hang with this, Lord. Help us to hang, and I, I pray that you would meet with us again and that we would see your face one more time and see what it is to really pursue holiness. So we don't just leave here on an emotional high, but we go out different, uh, with a different commitment to a different kind of lifestyle, a different kind of uh, pursuit in the way that we order our steps. So, so meet with us now, Father. Meet with us for your great name, for your holiness, for, for your name's sake. Not, not because we're wonderful, because we deserve it, but because you're glorious. So we just uh, come to you now again, and we, we worship you. We commit our time into your care and ask that you would be highly exalted, that you would be magnified and glorified in it. And I pray that you would equip us for, for a real lifelong pursuit transformation, a lifelong pursuit of your holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are, our last session together, and we're still trying to get our heads around the focus of this entire retreat. You know, all the brochures said on the cover, transformed, pursuing God's holiness. And so that's been our concern this weekend. What does it mean to be transformed? What does it look like to pursue God's holiness? How does that process happen? And what we've seen thus far from 1 Samuel chapter 4 is that holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins as we see God rightly. And then just a little while ago in our last session, we walked through 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, which helps us see that heart transformation happens... As we learn to respond to God's hand of conviction by turning to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. And so I figured we might as well just go on to 1 Samuel 7 because surely there's got to be something worthwhile in there too. Now honestly, I, I love it that our last session together is in 1 Samuel chapter 7 because this chapter, as much as any chapter in the Bible, gives us a wonderful picture of what it looks like to pursue God's holiness. It's a wonderful account, a wonderful portrait of a group of people pursuing transformation together. And so we're going to read this account of God's people, Israel, after a long time of wandering away from him, a long time of, of going their own way and doing their own thing, finally turning to the Lord, pursuing God's holiness and being transformed. So let's pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We will begin in verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid because of the, the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Okay, now something jumps out when we read this. Because up to this point, Eli and company have been in charge but now they're gone. And Samuel is leading the people of Israel. He's leading them. And there's no mention of Samuel during that whole process where Israel acted like knuckleheads and they lost the ark in battle and everything that took place. You know, in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. His last appearance was in chapter 4, verse 1. But here Samuel is again, popping up again in chapter 7, and things seem to be going somewhat better. And like I said, they, they've been, you know, the people of Israel have been acting like knuckleheads, been doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They tried to manipulate God. They had tried to um, force God's hand. They had lost the Ark of the Covenant in battle and in the process of all of this. And they realized what they had done. It was sin. And what's so cool is that the entirety of 1 Samuel chapter 7 is this journey, uh, this, this journey of repentance, this pursuit of holiness, See, transformation really starts to happen here in chapter 7. Change really begins to take place in this group of men, this group of people. God begins to change their hearts. Their whole attitude changes. And I want to get a look at this journey before we all head home this afternoon. You guys have lives, you have jobs, you have families and other things. But before you leave today and go and pursue whatever it is that's on your plate, whatever's on your calendar, I I want you to leave with this in mind. What's it look like to pursue God's holiness? What does it look like to be transformed? Well, it looks like 1 Samuel chapter 7. It looks like 1 Samuel chapter 7. When you go home and you can't remember anything that I've said this entire weekend, please remember 1 Samuel chapter 7. Come back to this chapter from time to time. You love God's holiness? Come back to 1 Samuel 7. You want to be transformed in your life? Come back to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Follow the path that's laid out for us here. Because it is an incredible journey to transformation. And so here we are in our last session together. And I'm going to party like it's 1585. Okay, I'm going to make eight observations. Mark that. Eight observations concerning the pursuit of holiness from this passage. And that's a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant, I know, but that's what we're going to do. You can think of them as eight stops along the journey to transformation. The journey to transformation. So let's get busy. Take another look at verse 2. Verse 2. Do you see the very first stop there? It says that the Israelites lamented after the Lord. That's, That's a very interesting way to put it, isn't it? They lamented, they mourned after the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 puts it this way. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. The first observation that I want to make here is that transformation begins with a deep sense of godly sorrow over sin. Do you see that? Transformation begins with a deep sense of godly sorrow over sin until we come to the point that we grieve over our sin we cannot and will not begin to experience biblical transformation. You see, real repentance starts in the heart. We feel it. We feel it. And it doesn't do any good to to logically acknowledge, hey, I've committed a sin if I have no sense of remorse over it, no sense of, of regret or repentance over that. We can't trick God here. He, he knows if we're just going through the motions. Oh, yeah, I did that. Whatever. I'm moving on. And we can't trick him because this whole thing, this whole work of transformation is a work that begins inwardly on the inside. It's a heart issue. And although transformation starts in the heart, it, it doesn't stop there. 
So look back at verse 3. Let's keep going. Samuel tells them in verse 3, he says, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. So here we have repentance, and it begins in the heart once we've been pricked by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, once we feel the heavy hand of God. But it moves beyond that to action. And that leads me to the second observation I want to make from this passage about the pursuit of holiness, and it's this. This is characterized by a clear and decisive break with sin. A clear and decisive break with sin. Samuel tells the Israelites to put the Ashtoreth and the foreign gods away from them. Get them away. Get get rid of those things. Now, this may not seem like a demand that required a whole lot of them until we realize that the Ashtoreth, that Ashtoreth was a goddess of love and fertility, and sexual orgy was part of that religious ritual. So these guys are entwined in this stuff. It has deep roots. It's addictive. But Samuel calls them to pursue holiness. Holiness. And if that's really going to happen, then a decisive break with sin must be made. You can't get out of the swimming pool and keep one toe in the water. You know what I mean? When we're talking about this, you know, Samuel says, hey, listen, you've got to get completely out of the trouble that you've been swimming around in. You've got to completely break away from that. And I want to tell you the same today. Take a hard look at your life. You know, you may have this weekend identified a few areas of sin in your own heart and your own life. And you know, I've got to turn away from that. I can't keep doing that. But if you try and keep one toe in the water, of whatever it is that you may have been doing. And, and at the same time, now I'm going to follow Jesus too. Well, that's just not going to work, guys. It just does not work. As Samuel said, put those things away. Once and for all. There has to be a clear and decisive break with sin. But Samuel's only getting warmed up here. Check out verse 3 again. Check out verse 3. He says... If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Direct your heart to the Lord. In other words, the pursuit of holiness requires a regular reorientation of our hearts to God. That's the third observation that I want to make here. Every time we sin, it's because somewhere along the way, even though it may not be at the conscious level, even though it may not be in our mind at the moment, we've begun to believe the serpent's lie that God does not have our best in mind. Every time we sin, we begin to to believe that lie, just like Adam and Eve did. We believe that, that we think that we know better than God does about what we need. And so we take matters into our own hands and we eat whatever forbidden fruit may be, you know, interesting to us or we may be lusting after in that moment and we we justify it by calling god's good character into question every time we sin we do this and so when the holy spirit pricks our hearts and we feel that godly sorrow over our sin and we make this this break this clear break with sin we must also reorient our hearts to the lord we've got to do this time and time and time again that's part of true repentance Because sin is more than just doing something that God has told us not to do. See, whenever we sin, whether we vocalize it or not, whether it ever comes out of your mouth or mine, we are saying, God is not good. God does not care about me. God does not love me. He is not right. He doesn't know what I need. He can't take care of me. And even more, when we sin, we're saying, I know more than God does. Me. And so I'm going to choose what I'm going to do, and God is going to deal with that. I can do whatever I want. God can't tell me what I'm going to do with my life. I'm the king of my own castle here. And pretty soon we're quoting Himley's poem, Invictus. It's a powerful poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. I in the clutch, excuse me, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud until or under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years 
finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's a great poem, isn't it? Moves me every time I read it. Unfortunately, it's perpetuating the same lie that Satan was peddling to Adam and Eve in the garden. You're the master of your fate. You, you are the captain of your soul. No, you're not. You are not. Whatever gave you that, what gave you that? The reason that any of us have breath is because Jesus Christ holds the world together in his hands. The reason that we're alive right now is because Jesus is sustaining us and keeping us. The only reason that our galaxy hasn't flown into some sort of smithereens and we're not either frozen or fried is because Jesus Christ holds all things together. That's the reason why we're here. So let's just get over this whole nonsense that I'm the captain of my own soul. I could die today, and so could you. I I have no power over that. I have have no... uh, control over what's going to happen to me in the future. I can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone a year from now or 10 years from now. I'm not the captain of my own soul. Jesus Christ is the captain of this ship and same as everyone else in here. He's the king of kings and lord of lords and he's sovereign over your life as well as mine. And every time we sin, every time we we rebel against God, we must direct our heart, we must reorient our hearts to God. And instead of saying, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, we say, no, no, Lord, you are the master of my fate. You, Father, are the captain of this soul. You know, there's that fireproof movie that came out a, a few years back, a Christian you know, a church put it together. For a church, it was pretty amazing. Um, if my church put a movie together, it wouldn't, I, it wouldn't be that good, I'll tell you that. We'll just leave it there. But as that fireproof movie says, uh, don't follow your heart. Lead it. You know, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You don't follow that. You, you lead it. You lead it, as Samuel says, direct your heart to the Lord. You force your heart and say, Jesus, you're king again. You're over me again. I want to reorient my life to you. And you're the center. You're the king. You lead me. See, the pursuit of holiness is marked by this regular reorientation of our hearts to God. Take another look there. 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 and 4. Samuel says, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and, he says, serve him only. Serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. My fourth observation about the pursuit of holiness is that it is marked by a heart of undivided affection for Jesus. Undivided. See, the funny thing about God is that you worship him only or you don't worship him at all. He wants everything. You ever notice that before? These people can't continue to worship the Ashtoreth, the goddess of love and fertility, and Baal, the son of Dagon, whose head just got chopped off. You know that guy? Baal was his, his son in this, you know, strata of, of uh, you know, Near Eastern gods and whatnot. And, and he was the male deity um, of fertility, and he was God of the storm. That's who Baal was, God of the storm. You can't worship those and still worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. can't work. You, you don't, there is no divided affections here. Our God is not the more the merrier type. He wants our undivided service, our undivided worship, our undivided affection Him alone. See, the the pursuit of holiness requires not only the absence of sin, it also requires the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And there is such a thing as godless morality. There is such a thing as secular ethics. But that's not the gospel. That's not biblical spirituality. Because they're both godless. They're both Christless. They're both devoid of the gospel. Real transformation is a Jesus-filled, Jesus-centered enterprise. And in our spiritual journey, we're traveling to the place where Jesus Christ 
reigns as supreme in our affections. That's the end game, that Jesus would be our our delight and our joy and our greatest treasure, knowing Jesus and worshiping Jesus and abiding in Jesus and staying in Jesus and knowing Jesus and following Jesus and loving Jesus. That's the end game of holiness, men. Undivided. Undivided affection. And when that happens, when Jesus really does reign supreme, there are some corresponding evidences of that in our lives. We're going to look at a few of those in this passage. Go to, go to verse 6, 1 Samuel 7, 6. So Samuel's preached to the people, right? And they hear his message and they respond. They put away the false gods. They serve the Lord only. And then at verse, in verse 6 it says, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They drew water and poured water out before the Lord. Here's number five. Number five, heart transformation is oftentimes accompanied by an outward expression of the internal change that is taking place. Heart transformation is oftentimes accompanied by an outward expression of the internal change. That's why I have people come to me all the time and say, Pastor, I want to get baptized because Jesus has done something in me. Now I'd like, to, I'd like to be baptized. I want to express that publicly, outwardly, because he's done something inwardly in my heart. The people here, they pour out water before the Lord. Now, this is a really unusual thing in Scripture. We don't see this a whole lot of times. Um, there's some debate amongst scholars about what exactly does this mean. But I think that Lamentations chapter 2 Verses 18 and 19 give us some insight. And in that passage in Lamentations, it says, we're we're told to pour out our heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Pour out our hearts like water before before his presence. See, pouring out water, it was a symbol of heartfelt distress. So when the people poured out water, it wasn't for show. They were moved to do it. It wasn't some external thing that, hey, hey, we should just go through the motions because this is, you know, this is how we appease God or something. No, they were, they, it, was, it was symbolic of the inward thing that Jesus was doing inside of them. And I'm not suggesting for us this morning, so don't leave here confused. I'm not saying, listen, guys, just dump out a bucket of water whenever you sin and then you're good. You know, don't you go out to the lawn? Hey, I haven't watered my lawn anyway. Okay, good. Hey, me and Jesus are all right. That's not what I'm suggesting here. And I'm also not suggesting that we need to conjure up some sort of ritual as a display to demonstrate how transformed I am or how holy I've become. I'm not suggesting that. All I'm saying is that transformation, transformation is often followed by some sort of tangible action that reflects what's taking place inside of our hearts. So it may mean that you go and ask somebody for forgiveness because you've wronged them or manipulated them or you've walked on them some way. Uh, It it may be that you need to get rid of something that's causing you to sin. I was just talking to a guy recently who rededicated his life to the Lord uh, back in, I think it was in the 90s. And uh, he rededicated his life to the Lord. He was in college. and, And this was back in the day. Everybody listened to cassette tapes, you know. Yeah, back in the day. What? What? So anyway. When this happens, this guy rededicates his life to Jesus, and he threw a thousand cassette tapes away. A thousand. That may seem kind of silly now, but for a college-age guy at the time, that was an expression of what God was doing in him. Music was no longer the most important thing in his life. Jesus was. And I don't know what it may be for you, but, but don't be surprised if in your pursuit of holiness... That, there would, that God would require some sort of outward display from you or from me. But let's keep going. Look at verse 6. After pouring out the water, the people fasted. They fasted. Now, this clearly is much, much more common in the Bible. And I would like to suggest that one of the tools that God uses to transform us, as well, of the, as well as one of the corresponding evidences that God is, in fact, working in our lives, is a regular practice of spiritual disciplines. A regular practice of spiritual disciplines. Now, there are a number of spiritual disciplines that God uses to shape us and uses to mold us and conform us into the image of His Son. I mean, the ones that most of us would think about this morning would be Bible study and prayer. That's what we think of. 
But the purpose of all of the spiritual disciplines is to draw near to Jesus. To be still enough to hear his voice. To be, to be quiet enough and still enough before him to see him move. And if you've not made this a habit, it, it, carve out time to be alone with God. Carve out time to, to sit in his presence, to read his word. It doesn't have to be super complicated. You know, just, just be near him. Read something from the Bible. Meditate on his word. Chew on his word. And then let his word inform how you live that day. Ask God to help you see his presence in your life. And ask him to, to guide you through the day. To, to keep in step with his Holy Spirit. Confess whatever sin that, that there is in your life that, that the Holy Spirit has convicted in you. And ask for his cleansing and his forgiveness once again. And then ask him to give you grace to move forward in the power of the Spirit for that day. See, the spiritual gifts, or excuse me, the spiritual disciplines are gifts and not drudgery. They're gifts to us. God has given them to us. They're delight. They're not duty. And because practicing the, the spiritual disciplines, um, they're gifts because they're just simple ways to draw near to Jesus, the one that we treasure, the one that we love, the one that we worship, the one that we want to be like, the one that we want to draw near to. Now, the, the spiritual discipline mentioned in this particular passage is fasting. And it's a way, fasting is it's just a way to tell God um, that we desire him more than we desire our most basic needs. I desire you more than that, Lord. I desire being with you. I'm more hungry for you than I am for everything that the world has to offer. I'm more hungry with you. I, I don't want to get so stuffed with the world that I don't feast on the goodness of Jesus Christ and his grace and his great glory. No, I want that more. I want that more. And in the Bible, when fasting is coupled with prayer, as it is always throughout, throughout the scriptures, it's a, it's a cry to God. It's a cry oftentimes for him to break the hold of sin in our lives. And if you're finding that you're going through a cycle in your own life where, where you know, you sin, you repent, you're, you're restored, and then pretty soon you find yourself sinning again, and then repenting again, and then being restored again, and you just kind of go through this cycle, and you, you just keep coming back, and it's like, here we go, you know, same song, 57th verse. Perhaps fasting would be a spiritual discipline that God could use in your life to help you uh, as, as he wants to break the hold of sin that's deeply rooted in your own heart. Let's keep moving. Otherwise, I'll have you here all day. <laughs> One person's up for it. All right. All right. Last part of verse 6. Take a look. Last part of verse 6. It tells us that the people said, we have sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against the Lord. That's the seventh observation I want to make. The pursuit of holiness is marked by a posture of humility moving forward. A posture of humility moving forward. This is huge. It's huge. Notice that the people of Israel didn't make any excuses for their sin. They, they didn't lie about their sin. They didn't argue with God over their sin. They didn't try to cut a deal with God over their sin. They just owned it. We did it. We sinned. They, they, didn't, they didn't try to to you know, push it off on somebody else. They said, Lord, we've messed up. We've rebelled against you. We've gone our own way. They humbly acknowledged their sin before the Lord. You see, humble people grow in holiness because when humble people are confronted with their sin, they don't try to get around it. They don't try to push it off on somebody else. They don't try to justify it. They don't try to minimize it. They own it. And until a person owns up to their sin, they're still persisting in that same sin. But an honest confession of past sin, along with an honest admission that we're prone to sin, prone to wander, is actually the best antidote to keep us from falling into future sin. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, we must move forward in a posture of humility, recognizing our own weakness, recognizing our own frailty, our own tendency, not towards holiness, but towards sinfulness. I've heard it said before that people oftentimes will drift into sinfulness, but we never drift into holiness. You're not going to drift into holiness. 
And you will find that the most holy people that you ever meet are also the most humble. They're the most ready to acknowledge that but for the grace of God, they would be mired, mired in sin. So Samuel preached. And the people listened. And they respond, responded in this way. But then something happened. Something always happens, right? I mean, the Philistines catch wind of what's going on. And I have no idea how the Philistines know. But somehow they know that God is doing something, that God is, I mean, these guys are just a pain in the backside, you know? If something starts to go right, the people start to be transformed. God's doing something in their life. And then, next thing you know, the enemy comes. But I would just like to suggest this morning that in truth, our enemy, Satan, always seems to know when we're pursuing God's holiness. Always seems to know when we're pursuing God's holiness. And and, and you can be sure that, well, he's not real happy about it. He's not happy about it. He knows that you guys are here. He knows that we're here this weekend. And so when you go home this afternoon, be on the lookout. Because our enemy, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce on someone. See, whenever we're pursuing holiness, whenever we're pursuing transformation, whenever we're going to pursue Jesus Christ, you can be sure that the enemy is going to catch wind of what's going on in your heart, that Jesus is working in you. And now guess what? You're a target. That's what you are going to be. There's a huge bullseye on your back. And Satan's going to want to pop you right in the mouth. So you go right back into whatever it was before him. See, he's looking for a chink in the armor. Satan's looking for a weak spot. He's looking for a place where he can attack. And if that freaks you out a little bit, that may not be completely bad. Certainly freaked out Israel in verse 7. When they learned that the Philistines were gathering all of their troops to attack them. See, they're scared. They're they're trying to seek God. They're trying to follow him. They're finally starting to experience the transformation that they so desperately needed. I mean, remember in chapter 4, Ichabod, the glories departed. They're being led under Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are picking up chicks at the tabernacle to have sex with. And they're stealing people's sacrifices, profaning the worship of God. This was a people that needed transformation. This is a people that needed God's touch. And now they're getting it. God's moving. They're being transformed. And right on the heels of all of that, this moment of renewal, when things are finally starting to go their way, a fresh attack comes. But look what they do in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The people beg Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Isn't that interesting? These are the same people who, when they were threatened by the Philistines in chapter 4, resorted to manipulation. But now here in chapter 7, with the same threat facing them, they're resorting to prayer. Prayer. Something has begun to change in them. Something is taking place. It's called transformation. You see, the pursuit of holiness leads to a renewed Dependence upon God in prayer. And when the attacks come, fellas, and they will come. When the attacks come from Satan and he's trying to thwart what God is doing in your life. And what God is doing in your heart. And maybe some of you have made some some changes already. You've talked to your pastor. You've talked to your accountability partner. You've been in prayer. and, And maybe some changes are beginning to take place. Satan wants to thwart that. And he's going to come against you with renewed vigor. He's going to turn the heat up. And our response as men pursuing God's holiness is a renewed dependence upon him in prayer. In fact, it's uh, one of our most wonderful weapons in spiritual battle. You know, we, we, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You know, Jesus has not left us ill-equipped here in the battle, folks. 
but he's given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us his word. We're supposed to take up the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the, the, the belt of truth and shod our feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's nothing on our back, nothing at all, because we're only going in one direction, boys, and it's forward. Because we're going to kick down the doors of hell and continue to advance the gospel through this entire city. That's what God wants from you all. Transformation. No more of this backpedaling stuff. We're moving one way. You know, and the, uh, I've looked before. What's in our backside? Like, what do we have to protect us back here? The only thing that I can find is Isaiah chapter 58. It says that if we take care of the poor and the needy and those guys, if, if we divide our bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, and when we see the naked to cover him and not to hide ourselves from our own flesh, then the glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. That's the only thing I can find in all of Scripture that's going to be behind. The glory of the Lord as we move forward on mission with Jesus in this city. Pray. After you've put on all the armor, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, get on your knees and pray. Pray for all the saints. Pray for me. Pray that I would speak the gospel as I ought. And transformed men come to a place of renewed dependence upon God in prayer. See, the people of Israel, they, they knew they couldn't do anything about their situation apart from God's strength. They couldn't do anything. It, they, they realized that if God didn't move, if God didn't show up, they were dead in the water. There was no hope apart from Jesus showing up and, and showing his mighty arm on their behalf and protecting them and saving them. If God didn't do something, they, they were gone. And so they prayed. But check out verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. He thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. See, verse 10 tells us that Yahweh is really the one who's the God of the storm. It's not Baal. Baal is not the God of the storm. Our God, the only God, is the one who has all power. And there was panic in the Philistine camp. And Israel routs them in battle. God saves the day. He saves the day. He thunders. The Philistines panic. And the Israelites triumph. And I just want to say to you all today. That our God can surely. And he will. Protect you and save you. From Satan's attacks. Today. It's going to come. But praise God, we have a mighty, mighty Savior. But that's really not the end of the story here in 1 Samuel 7. Um, Samuel knew something that we should take note of as well. It's very important. And, and, and this is it. Samuel knew that it's really, really easy to forget God's mercy. He knew that it's really easy to, to experience this transformative work of God in our lives and then walk away and totally forget about what God has just done. He, he knew that. And so Samuel does everything in his power to make sure that Israel would never forget the day that God saved them. Never forget the day that they bowed down in worship and in prayer, depended upon God to save them, and God moved and he did just that. He didn't want them to forget that. Take a look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. See, Samuel took a stone and he set it up as a reminder that God had helped them. He called it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. He said, up to this point, up to this time, God has, has helped us. He's helped us. You know, there, there's an old song that many of us sing in church. It's been sung for a couple hundred years. It's called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
And there's a line in that song. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And I imagine that most of us who sung that song in church, we really have no idea what in the world an Ebenezer is. What in the world does this song refer to? Well, it refers to this. It refers to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Samuel says, listen, up to this point, God has helped us. He's, He's protected us. He's led us to this point of transformation. He's let us see his holiness. He's let us see his majesty, and he's pulled us in near. See, Israel needed that. They needed transformation. They needed God's intervention. They were desperate. They were Ichabod. The glory had departed. If anybody ever needed the touch of God, it was the people of Israel at this time. If anyone ever needed God to change them and meet with them and encounter them and renew them, it was these people at this time. But this was something that they could not do on their own. They couldn't do it by themselves. God helped them. You know, I'll I'll never forget a day. It was about 10 years ago. I, I was cleaning out my garage. And I was out there, you know, big day. You know, yeah, that happens like once a decade for me. And so I was, out, I was out cleaning my garage, and my son Joshua was with me because we always have just loved hanging out together. And so Josh and I are out in the garage. We're, we're picking up, and after being out there for a while, I call my wife out because I want to brag, and I want her to tell me what a good job I've done, you know. And so I want to show her all of our progress and, and just, you know, brag about it for a little bit. And so I'm out in the garage, and Josh is out in the garage with me, and my wife comes out in the garage too, when my little daughter, Abigail, who was about one and a half, tottered over and locked the security chain on the door leading to the garage. Now, there was a glass pane. You know, there's a window in the door so we could see her inside. And she had apparently, you know, reached up on her tippy toes and just barely was able to get the chain and put it in the track to lock me and my wife and my son out into the garage. My youngest wasn't born yet. The only people in the house are my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter and my dog. He wasn't much help. So so Kate and I are standing there. We're looking through the window, trying to coach Abby so that she can open the door and get the chain unlocked. We're trying to walk her through all the steps. We're trying to tell her how to do it, the process. This is how you go through this process. This is how you open the chain and whatnot. And in my dad-of-the-year moment, I got a little upset And I made her cry. And so my daughter, my little daughter, is inside crying, trying and trying to unlock this chain that she's locked while we're all out in the garage, and there's no other way in my house. She's sobbing, bawling, trying, but unable to do anything about it. Eventually, I walked or went over to the uh, um, hardware store a couple of blocks away, and I borrowed, borrowed because I did not have a wallet some lock cutters, bolt cutters, and walk, got back to my house and cut the chain so that I could get in there. I didn't want to, you know, the door with my daughter standing behind it. Not good. So we finally get the door open, you know, and, and today she's only, you know, slightly scarred. But here's the point. When it comes to holiness, We're more like little girls than we would probably like to admit. We find ourselves in a bad spot because of our sin. Know what I mean? Because of some of the things that we ourselves have done. I've done it. You've done it. The problem is, now that we're there, we can't unlock the door to transformation in and of ourselves. We're in a bind, and we can't get out of it. We're stuck, and we're trying, and we're trying, and we're trying, but we need our Father to step in and do something for us that we cannot do ourselves. See, transformation isn't something that we decide we're going to do. Ultimately, God must do it. God must help us. See, as we learned last night, holiness is an inward transformation of the heart that only begins when we see God the Father rightly. And we saw a little little while ago that heart transformation happens as we learn to respond to God's hand of conviction by turning to God the Son, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness and cleansing. But in our pursuit of God's holiness, 
we must never forget that God the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us. He must do it. He must do this work in your heart. He must do this work in mine. It's his work. Our triune God in his strength and in his power can change us and can transform us. You know, here we are. We're almost ready to go home, probing the theme of this retreat, transformed, pursuing God's holiness. It's really a journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer. It's a journey from the place where his glory has departed to a place where we can triumphantly say, God has helped us. He's helped us. He's done it. And if I let anyone leave here today, thinking that this is a work that we do, if this is a work that I do or a work that you do, and that this journey from Ichabod to Ebenezer is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of a deal, then I've done everyone here a huge disservice. Huge. Because this is not my work. It's not your work. It's the work of God himself who helped you, who helped me come this far. It's his work. We're so broken, we're so prone to wander, so lazy, so selfish, so bent in upon ourselves. But God has brought you and God has brought me this far. He's brought us here. He's brought us to this place, this weekend, right now, today, for a fresh encounter with him. To renew our hearts, to renew our minds, to make us more like Jesus Christ. He's brought us to this place today as an Ebenezer stone to show you that he's not done with you yet. He's not done. Till now the Lord has helped us. And listen, we have no reason to believe that he won't continue to help us until that day when he brings us safely home. So if you're ever tempted to think that perhaps our God is just done with you, you're Ichabod and the glory of the Lord has departed, if you're tempted to think that perhaps he's just given up on transforming you and transforming your life, and you're tempted to just, you, you know, throw in the towel because God has, you know, just cut his losses with you and moved on to, to someone else, you need to remember, you need to remember those Ebenezer stones those stones that remind us of God's help up to this point. And I, and I want to point out one in particular. It was a stone that was used to seal a tomb one day. A stone that was used to seal a tomb of a man who had died on a cross as a substitute for our sin. And it was a stone that was meant to squelch any kind of belief in a living and present God who helps us and who changes us. It was a stone that was meant to seal the death of belief in Jesus as Lord. But it didn't. It didn't because that stone was rolled away. And that stone now reminds us not only of Christ's suffering and Christ's death, but even more, it reminds us of Christ's victory over sin and over Satan and over death and over hell and everlasting life. See, that stone, it's an Ebenezer stone reminding us of God's help. And so as we leave here today, you know, we are so apt to forget how God has intervened. We're so apt to forget all the mercies, the 10,000 kindnesses that Jesus has shown us day in and day out. We're so apt to forget how he's helped us. If you're apt to forget that, remember the stone that was rolled away. Remember that, Ebenezer Stone. You were lost. You were without a Savior. You were stuck in your sin. You were unrepentant. You were without God and without hope in the world. But Jesus Christ came, and Jesus Christ lived, and Jesus Christ bled, and Jesus Christ died. He gave us his life. He gave us his love. He gave us his forgiveness. And at some point in the future, you're going to have a hard time seeing God's help in this situation. You're going to have a hard time. God, where are you? There's going to be times where you're feeling anything but holy, when you've done something shameful, you've done something sinful. And when that time comes, please remember, remember that Ebenezer stone that was rolled away. And remember it because of this, if God the Father would give you his own son, then what would he withhold? Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, God already got over the terrible decision of giving up his own son to suffer and die. So let me ask you this. Would he then withhold his holiness from a group of men passionately pursuing it? helped you thus far. And he will bring you home. Let's raise some Ebenezer stones this morning. We're going to close in prayer. But it's not just going to be me. My voice is gone. Because I've been yelling at you for two days. This is what I want. We're all going to stand up. Go ahead. You don't all have to do this, but if you have seen how the Lord has helped you, I want to invite some of you, just as kind of a popcorn prayer, loud and clear so everyone can hear it, short, you're not giving a sermon. I want you to say, thus far the Lord has helped me, by, and then you fill in the blank. And then the rest of us, after one person says that, the rest of us will say, praise his holy name. And then another one will say, thus far the Lord has helped me, bye. And the rest of you will say, praise his holy name. Father, I praise you that you have saved us by sending your son And you transform us by the power of your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to see you rightly. I pray, Father, that you would um, give us soft hearts to turn to the Son, Jesus Christ. Time and again for renewal and cleansing. And I pray, Father, that you would always help us to remember that it's by your help. And the help of the Holy Spirit that we have come thus, this far. 